My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host of a Minor Detail Radio podcast, where the minor details of every story matter. Each week, I talk to Maryland newsmakers, from elected officials, journalists, political candidates, to policy wonks and everyday Marylanders. A Minor Detail podcast is the fusion between Maryland news and politics. Real people, real stories, honest conversation. You can also follow us on the web at aminordetail.com. Sit back, relax, and have fun. Well, gobble, gobble, everybody, and welcome back from the uh, Thanksgiving break. I I don't know if everybody is comatose from turkey or the other uh, probably superfluous amount of uh, Thanksgiving ingredients that we all consumed. Uh, me, I was visiting my family in Hagerstown, and yes, my it looks like I don't know if like I, my guest is Alison Galbraith, but I'm sure that she has a similar story where your family, when you try to leave the Thanksgiving dinner and they just keep piling on food and they like this year, my mother actually told me bring Tupperware, bring containers so you can just fill up for the next week and a half. And they just kept giving us more food, Allison. Like they just, we tried to leave and we're walking out the door and my mother's like, no, take more, take more. You know what the trick to saving your Tupperware is? It's Ziploc bags. Gallon-sized Ziploc bags. I swear we left with like two pies. We left with probably uh, a pound of turkey. uh, Anything you can imagine that was on the Thanksgiving Day table, we left with it. And somehow they give it all to us. And you, know, you have to eat it within a week or you feel bad that it's staring at you in the face when you open the refrigerator and you're like, oh, God, I got to eat that. But it's everything there is so bad, for you, right? Like pie. Like there's so much pie in our refrigerator. I'm thinking about taking it to work tomorrow and just giving it away. I don't know. I might I, I might do that. I might you do know, that. The, problem, the problem with the pie is it's so much easier to get to than something that needs to be reheated. So you <laughs> yeah, right? straight towards the pie instead of, say, mashed potatoes or – Green bean casserole yeah. or something. Yeah. Well, tonight, Allison Galbraith is back again. She's been on the show a couple times. She's one of my favorite guests. Um, Allison, how was your Thanksgiving? It was all right. It was a change of pace because my mom passed away. Yeah. Hmm. Not last. She wasn't with us last Thanksgiving, but that's still new. Um, you know, and then and then a divorce, and uh, my best friend had moved away to West Virginia. So, I just opened it up and said, you know, anybody who doesn't have a place to be on Thanksgiving, then send me a message. Come over here. You're welcome. And a couple of people showed up, and it was my dad and my sisters. My little brother was in Africa, but he's back now. So I guess we get to have two Thanksgivings, and I'm hoping that they'll eat some of my leftovers. (laughs) Did you cook? Did you cook everything and prepare it all? Well, it would not be fair for me to take credit for what my little sister and her boyfriend cooked. (laughs) But... But some of it, yes, and it was prepared at my house. I I would be remiss if I didn't tell the audience that I made absolutely nothing. I'm such a bum, and my mom and my grandmother, they did all of the cooking, and I asked. I said, hey, do you want us to come up and help? 
And that was not like a wink, wink, you want me to come up and help. That was a legitimate, hey, we'll come up earlier than we typically do. Thanksgiving each year starts at our place. Uh, well, my grandmother's at uh, one o'clock, but I legitimately offered and my mother was like, no, we got it. We got it. And but maybe next year I'll just come up and get her and get in her way in the kitchen. But uh, yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that you had a all right. I I'm glad to hear that you had a good Thanksgiving, and uh, you know we we got some stuff done, and we played an epic game of Monopoly last night, and that was a lot of fun. We do that every year, um, usually the day after Thanksgiving or the Saturday. We play like well into the night, so it was a good time. The kids played, and you know we almost flipped the game board over like three times because that's what we do in our family. So anyway, Allison, welcome back. You are. Uh, taken the state by storm you ran for congress in the primary you ran as a democrat in the first congressional district um, trying to topple andy harris and you were unsuccessful but then you know you did something very classy you endorsed your opponent and that was that's not always the easiest thing to do and i'm not saying that he was you know necessarily you, you had some good people running in that district but you know, you, you did the classy thing and you stood by the winner in that race. And that was a, an interesting race. And I don't know if we've talked since then, but you put, a, you put your heart and soul into that race. You built a, one of the biggest grassroots networks that I've ever seen in the state of Maryland in such a short period of time. And you're a mom who decided to run because you were pissed off at the incumbent who is, really should not have gotten reelected, but that's for another that's for another show. I mean, we can talk about that, but um, Allison, I'm glad you ran. And I think you really contributed something important to that race. Do you want to, you want to just share some thoughts about that experience? I, well, you know, part of my, part of my experience running is why I want to run for vice chair of the party, because it occurs to me that our political system, our campaign system itself, is not meant for people like me. It's not meant for single moms. I mean, I, you know, there shouldn't be any mistake about that. Most people who are running have the ability to quit their jobs. They have a spouse who's going to pay the bills or they're independently wealthy or something like that, at least when you're talking about a congressional race, right? But oh, my yeah. expertise is all federal. And you know, my mindset in a lot of ways, because I'm, I'm from District 1, I grew up in Bel Air. Right. And 30 years ago, it was all Democrats around here. And then <laughs> over time, that changed. And now it just gets redder and redder and redder by year. Well, why is that occurring, right? Because we shouldn't have people who, like, walk around and answer constituents' problems with the response that he doesn't think most people would mind if women paid more for health insurance. That's wholly unacceptable. And, you, you know, know, he so disputes are, that. He, his hmm? team and his people still dispute that. And j for the audience listening, you, were in, you had met him and had met him in a small group of people at uh, – was it the Bel Air office, if I remember correctly? Yeah, there were four or five other people there. I mean, this isn't like – What's your story? So you tell among him. any of them that he said it. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess he knew it was a no-go, right? Like not a popular opinion. Right. I mean, so if, I if people I who are listening, he learned that. I'm sure. And you, you reminded him many times uh, on social media. And it was I mean, it was fun to see you really show your disagreements with him in such a public way. Most people don't do that. And 
I, I appreciate that about you. I'm, I'm all for that. I think that people should – look, elected officials don't just create social media accounts to post pictures of flowery ceremonies and presenting awards and speaking at Rotary Clubs and whatever. People should be able to directly confront their elected representatives in a professional way, but also in a way that is – speaks to their own character and then it speaks to um, you know their own style but you did so in a way that really highlighted the issues but people who aren't familiar with what you were talking about you were in a group setting and Andy Harris said out loud to you that women wouldn't mind paying a little bit more for health care is that accurate uh, to be fair it was most people which makes me oh, question okay. whether he thinks women are people no well that's not uh, there's, something there's that... no telling Anyway, you know, we, we shouldn't have an electoral system where people say things like that, then defame their constituents by suggesting they were lying about it after the fact, and, and proceed to get reelected. That is ridiculous. And, and part of the problem that we have with the state in the gubernatorial elections is that is this four-county strategy. Like, we're just going to focus on these four counties, and as long as we turn out the vote in these four counties, then it's okay. It doesn't matter if you totally abandon the shore. Well, that's not actually true. And we have now two different elections to show that. We have to start competing in these red regions. And, you know, I have a lot of lessons learned from my own race. There are a lot of things I could have done better. There are a lot of things I did really well that most people don't do when they're campaigning. And I found myself in the middle of these efforts to sort of document all of it so that I could hand it to another candidate, uh, you know, so that it wasn't just complete martyrdom and they're starting from scratch trying to do the same thing over and relearn the things that, that I learned, that they had tools available to them and resources available to them. And then somebody called about this vice chair seat, and I said, you know what, everything I'm doing would be better done as part of the party. I can yeah. do it anyway, but then I'm just acting as the party in District 1 while the party continues to ignore District 1. That doesn't <laughs> benefit anybody. Well, District 1 is an interesting place. You talked about a, a four-county strategy. What, what four counties were you referring to? I'm, I'm less familiar with District 1 than I am. I'm more familiar with District 6 where I live. District 1, I mean, it's pretty – it's also considerably gerrymandered for Republicans to win the seat, I would say. And whereas District 6 used to be a Republican district, and I think that – I don't know what's going to happen based on that federal ruling – and if the Supreme Court's going to take it, and I know Brian Frosch is appealing it, I think we're in limbo now. We don't know what's going to happen in our 2020 election, but there could be a potential that Andy Harris, <laughs> he could be redistricted out or he doesn't run again. I don't know. There's umpteen different scenarios that could happen, but it looks like the four-county strategy, if I'm in my right, is it Cecil, Harford, Baltimore, and Anne Arundel? No, uh, not not. Um, it's PG County, Moco, Montgomery County, Baltimore City, and uh, I don't know. Anne Arundel's votes were weighted really heavily in this party race, but I always thought it was oh. Howard County. Either sorry, way, you I'm... don't see people around District One like they just don't come out here. They might do it once, twice, something like that, but there's never a there's never a heavy effort on the part of the Democrats, at least at least to my knowledge, 
prior to my race to say we're going to compete everywhere. And it doesn't matter how few votes you have or how many votes you have, that people simply deserve representation regardless of where they are on a map. Well, so after after you lost in your primary, and by the way, you came in second, and you know the vote the vote totals weren't that far off. I mean, you started early, you got in there, you built an amazing grassroots operation. People from all over the state of Maryland, as well as outside of the state of Maryland, followed you. You amassed quite a social media following, and you talked about real issues. You talked about healthcare. You talked about big ideas and people caught on they appreciated that and then comes the election then the general election occurred uh maryland reelected a republican governor for the first time in six decades but the drive for five that the republicans were banking on failed miserably for them they 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 blew it and the democrats picked up eight house seats so Outside of losing the governorship, and people knew that was a stretch from the outset, given Governor Larry Hogan's popularity, and and they knew that he was going to be a very tough opponent, and he had a lot of money, and Ben Jealous didn't, and Jealous had some major gaps along the way, but nonetheless, uh, that was a tough race outside. So here we are, and the Democrats have much to celebrate, I believe. They they, look – the county executive seat in Howard County, the county executive seat in Anne Arundel. They took out Steve Shue, which was Andy Harris's golden boy. Steve Shue was going to run for governor in four years, and guess who was going to be his, guess who was going to be his lieutenant governor pick? What I hear, Kathy Shalega. So everything has been upended in state politics. Allison, what do you make of all that? I think it's great. I still wish that they would put forth more of an effort in these red areas. I think that's the path forward for the party. I think it's not only the issue with the party across the state, why we, why we lost Senator Mathias' seat. Uh, it's, the part, it's the problem with the country, is that the party thinks it can get away with not talking to rural voters. When are we going to learn Amen. that that is a problem? Uh, yeah. Amen to that. That is why. Look, how many times did you see the major Democratic candidates in their district? Um, yeah, where did they go in Western Maryland? I grew up in Hagerstown. It's considered to be Western Maryland. I mean, if you really want to be technical, Allegheny and Garrett County are Western Maryland. But I, did did candidates, did Democrats, did the party, the state party, that is, Allison? Did they ignore Western Maryland? Did they ignore the Eastern Shore? Did they ignore Hartford and Cecil counties? Did, did they ignore the Lower Shore? What happened there? Well, I, I'll, I'll give them some credit, right? Like they have these conventions and or summits, right? They have the Western Summit and then they have yeah, the, the Eastern Shore Summit, Summit now. Uh, that's good. That's a step in the right direction. And they did manage with the coordinated campaign to get people out into all areas, is my understanding. But what I was seeing here in in Hartford uh, was confusion and delay. So it was that they offered something, but it was too little, too late, right? Whereas they had no problem hiring eight people or whatever it was to go to Baltimore County. Baltimore County is blue. Why do we need that many people there? Send some of them over to these other areas, and maybe you don't lose Senator Mathias' seat. Well, that that's, of course, a possibility. 
they like urban yeah yeah parties like to stay both parties they like to stay in urban cores and i i get that but you know matt matthias is a, a longtime distinguished guy that has done great work in the state senate and i think that had maybe the party paid a little bit more attention to his race he might have fared much better in fact he might have won now the other races, Kathy Klausmeyer's race in District 8 was especially close, and Christian Meal came in, Mealy came in uh, you know, a striking distance of that. Uh, Ron Young's district in Frederick City and in, in District 3, uh, that, that was not close. Um, but I think that you have a point there, Allison, is that the, the rural areas, it looks like Democrats often forget how to – at least engage the voters in rural Maryland, or they don't necessarily know how to run a strategic campaign speaking to how do you flip a rural district like Washington County? Well, you you don't. How do you flip a rural district like the Eastern Shore? You know, how do you go to, how do you go down to to Talbot County or Kent County or, uh, you know, Queen Anne's and say, hey, we're Democrats, vote for us. I don't think that's the strategy. I think you talk local issues that are important. You talk about what's important to without necessarily attaching a partisan label. For instance, in Washington County, where I grew up, Allison, they had a massive ethics problem inside of county government, except Democrats didn't speak to that. They wanted to talk about national issues, and that doesn't appeal to voters in Washington County. They were Washington County is a gung ho Trump's. Trump County, and it just didn't work. And it seems like they have to do you – know, every, every county needs a separate strategy in how voters are reached and, and how – what issues are discussed. Is that am – I, am I right on the money, or am I off base? I don't know. I think that most people have the same concerns in life. Everybody wants to be able to provide for their family, live safely, have access to good quality education for their kids and retire in peace and comfort, right? I mean, at the most fundamental level. As far as issues that you might talk about in certain areas that are unique to those areas, for instance, District 1 is is a much older population than other areas of the state. We have an an elder care crisis coming. Nobody's talking about it except for me because I happen to be in an elder care scenario myself, so I understood Mm -hmm issues that there's not a lot of support there and i did flip a lot of people and independents republicans libertarians simply talking about things like that but i think there's also this uh you know misunderstanding from people who don't live in these areas who aren't from these areas and the outside looking in that they think that what we need is somebody very conservative right like a conservative democrat and I would suggest that's not the case, right? You look at a Trumpster, and and Democrats will get angry (laughs) at me for saying this every single time, okay? But there are lessons to be learned from Trump's race. Nobody expected him to win. So you have to, you know, sort of without selling your soul or or (laughs) doing anything hateful to anybody, look at what it was that he was good at. He showed up everywhere. He campaigned in bizarre places. And he was the king of social media also was, uh, this is a little more debatable, but he, he said what was on his mind. He wasn't worried about being politically correct or polite or upsetting anybody. He just said what he felt like saying 
at that moment, and I'm inclined to believe that he at least sort of uh, believed what he was saying at the moment, so there's some degree (laughs) of authenticity there, too. Those things are the mistakes that Democrats often make mistakes about. And, and, you know, think of this uh, stereotype of the, um, like, the coastal elite, right? Mm -hmm. If you've been to the Eastern Shore, they don't care about your Harvard education. That's not it. Like, they're more likely to be impressed by the fact that you'll sit down and drink a beer with them. You know, they're not – it's – so anyway, anyway, what I was getting at is it's not that they want somebody like corporate but conservative, right? It's that they, they're very anti-establishment. And part of this goes back to the party's strategy and these areas being abandoned for so long. You look at why it flipped. District 1 30 years ago, again, was blue. And, and until last cycle, we even had representatives who were elected as Democrats 30 years ago, and we're still in office but as Republicans. And it was because the Democratic Party abandoned those areas, they pulled their resources and their funding, and they took it with them, saying it's just too hard to compete here, we're not going to bother anymore, we can focus on these four areas, and still win the governor's seat. And then the Republican Party maintained a presence and they started approaching candidates and saying, hey, I understand your party isn't giving you any money. Uh, we can give you some money. Do you want to become a Republican? And then 30 years later, you're looking at an entirely red region. Yeah. That's the thing yeah. to understand. And there's a lot of resentment from those people, especially Democrats in those areas, where, whereas Democrats in other parts of the state might say that the gerrymandering here is good because would you rather have, you know, uh, you know, four red seats and four blue seats or whatever, the Democrats from District 1 are looking at this and going, hey, could we have a voice already? Like, is that so much to ask? Do you mind just giving us a chance that somebody listens to us, that somebody cares, that we don't have to deal with the things that people like Andy Harris are going to throw at us because they think that their their seat is safe and nobody can do anything about it. Yeah, I I think you're you're spot on. I, I and I why is it though when either party wins or loses and take for instance the Republican party and you talk to Republicans in this last election cycle and they're mad at Larry Hogan because his coattails didn't carry down to some of the state House or state Senate races. So then they turn their, their ire towards Larry Hogan and say, well, he didn't do enough. Does the Democrats have any of that on your side to say, well, the state party didn't do enough for Ben Jealous. The state party didn't do enough for certain candidates. I mean, you guys, the, the Democrats certainly had a good run this year, and that was aided largely by what was happening nationally. People are very discouraged in the state of Maryland and elsewhere by Donald Trump, reasonably so. But did did you see or witness any neglect by this state party in its current form aimed at the top of the ticket against Mr. Jealous? I, I know that on some of the um, – what's it called? The term is escaping me. You know, like your talking points list for when you're canvassing. Right. But, and, and some of the mailers and things like that, Ben Jealous, right. left off. I know that happened that on is? the Eastern Shore. Well, because Hogan is popular over here. But again, you have to look at why Hogan is popular over here. He comes over here. He addresses our yeah. issues. You know, and, and people will cross party lines. You're not going to, like, just vote Democrat 
because it's the lesser of two evils, I think you're probably more inclined to not vote at all if it's, if it's that scenario. You Let have to have you something to vote for. I mean, right. somebody's got to go out there and talk to these people. And, um, you know, Hogan had a lot of support. I guess I sort of get it. Maybe. And and then at the end of the day, I just don't care. I mean, support your gubernatorial candidate. What is the problem? Um, do you think that Ben Jealous, his campaign was flawed? Or do you think that what was your take on his campaign apparatus in general? I, 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 I saw some of it, but and I can only speculate. It just seems like he was unable to raise money from inside of Maryland. And we know that people who can raise money are typically going to be safe in elections. I mean, and that, and I, and I don't mean that for every example. I just want to clarify that, but people who generally raise a lot of money, for instance, Anthony Brown, he raised a lot of money and he, he ended up losing to Larry Hogan in 2014. Did, did the lack of resources affect Jealous's ultimate vote totals in this general election? Well, probably, but I think RGA got in there early with his attack ads, and then it was going to be hard from then on no matter what you did. In, yeah. in fact, none of these polls said that any of the candidates could take out Hogan before the election even. <laughs> Some so, said I they mean, could. Are we, are we surprised that that's what happened? No. Rich I don't, I'm not. Rich, I'm not shocked. Rich, I'm a little sad. I'm not shocked. Rich Maddalino thought that he was going to be the one to, to take out Hogan, that he would, been, would have been the closest. And, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's a moot point. But I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the, the Democrats have only they, – they only can go upwards now. And I think four years from now, Allison, looking at the crop of candidates, I, I think they have a promising bench of of future gubernatorial candidates, future state senate candidates, but in particular gubernatorial candidates, I can name you at least three instant frontrunners or four instant frontrunners for the 2020 race, 2022 race rather, who would be instant competitors and would be dynamite on the campaign trail. That's that's important. And you look at the Republican bench, without Hogan, who do the Republicans actually have to run? Who do they have? I don't know. I don't know. Kathy Jaliga seems to be the popular one for any seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's certainly an option. She would have to uh, withdraw from her state delegate seat, and that you know that's that's interesting. But could Kathy Shaliga? Could she win a statewide race? And I think the answer we've already seen that in 2016, right? She wasn't able to win a statewide race, and she was backed by the Andy Harris establishment, whatever that is, and she was largely unsuccessful. So I, I, I don't know who the Republicans have, but if you the, the Democrats have a all-star bench that is just ready and waiting, and the Democrats are going to be eager to take back the governor's mansion after eight years of, of Larry Hogan. But – the party infrastructure, the Democratic Party of Maryland, who supports candidates, backs the Democrats, is made up uh, and comprised of the Democratic Central Committees. You – and we talked about this offline. You are not currently on a Democratic Central Committee, but you don't have to be to run for a state party office. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And looking ahead 
This Saturday is the Democratic State Central Committee. It's their meeting. It's on Saturday, December 1st, starts at 10 in the morning, and it's going to happen in Lanham, Maryland. And this is where you get to decide the, the leadership of Maryland's Democratic Party. And so there is there's an actual chairman's race or chairwoman's race, I should say, rather. This is going to be interesting and, and fun to watch. Kathleen Matthews, who is the current chairwoman of the Maryland Democratic Party, she's the incumbent. She is being challenged by Dr. Maya Rockamore Cummings of Baltimore City, was a brief candidate for governor. She ultimately was the first to drop out of the race. And she is a policy expert. She is a wonk. And and uh, she has deep roots in the Baltimore City community and formidable women candidates. They, they would be they would be excellent for this state party chair. And which leads me to believe if Dr. Rockamore Cummings is running for state party chair now, then she clearly is eyeing a future in Maryland politics. And like again, I think she would be formidable in whatever she decides to do. So. Do you do you have any takes on the chairperson race, Allison? Uh, well, I have to say that I am a big fan of people running for office who have a public policy background because that's what mine is in, mm-hmm. uh, my grad school. And I love Johnny O for it because I can go and, and uh, you know, walk out with him and talk to him about policy all day long. And I, you know, I like Maya for the same reason. And I, I will say that I've had some really great conversations with Maya with regard to what can be done in these rural areas. One of the things that I ask for is, uh, you know, when they're saying with these races, there's a gender balance requirement in some seats, and then there's also a regional balance requirement. So it's eight seats, but seven regions. And Hartford is lumped in with the Eastern Shore for whatever reason. Howard is lumped in with Western Maryland. And it's like things that just don't make any sense if you've ever looked at a Maryland map, you know. <laughs> and yeah. one of the things that I talked to Maya about was severing these and trying to make sense of the region so that everybody has a voice within the party, maybe regional shares or or something else. And she she seemed agreeable to at least form a committee to figure out what would be a more sensible way to address this so that certain areas just aren't being left behind. Being from Hartford, we have almost half the population in the entire yeah. region. But um, I don't feel like I should have to choose whether my rep is going to come from Eastern Shore or Hartford. And I don't think Eastern Shore should have to choose whether their rep is going to have to come from Easter Shore or Hartford. Now they know me. They've known me for two years now. So this isn't a, a big thing to them. And they seem content, but everybody I've spoken to also seems happy that they would have somebody who would advocate for splitting this up and actually making sense out of it. Uh, you know, and I've had more, I've had some productive conversations with Maya about that and making sure that the rural areas are getting uh, you know, some some assistance when it comes to recruiting candidates because our bench is weaker within these areas than it is throughout the rest of the state. Was it a secret that Dr. Cummings was was running? I, I didn't see it announced until either right before Thanksgiving or shortly thereafter. I think it was on this past Wednesday. Uh, would, did she not publicly announce it? I just I haven't seen anything about it. Until um, this past week. I don't think I saw anything come out until the day before the party announced everything anyway. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know what standard or when you would hear about it, but my understanding is this is more competitive than it's ever been. And I didn't thing. put anything out until the night that the deadline closed. Which was when? Uh, Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Okay. okay. So the, I, we know what the chair of the party does. They they lead the party. They set the vision. They show up at every virtually every Democratic event. They raise money on behalf of the party. Kathleen Matthews is well-known. She is from a prominent political family. Are people... Are Democrats in the state of Maryland dissatisfied with Kathleen Matthews' leadership? Is there anything – is there any issues that they take with Kathleen Matthews? Um, I, well, it's not anything different than what you see with sort of the, the more progressive wing of the party versus the more traditional wing of the party. Uh, you yeah, know, that's... and that same sentiment is pretty, pretty rampant no matter where you look in Democratic politics. So, so you have a lot of that going on, but also there's people who were like, "Why, why was Ben Jealous left off of these, left off these mailers and materials? Uh, mm-hmm. Why was it so difficult to get the support that we needed in certain areas? Why was it that everybody running for, you know, a delegate seat or a state senate seat, but in one of these red areas, was led to believe through the primary that they would have support from the primary or support from the party after the primary?" And then most of them didn't get anything except in a handful of circumstances. Hmm. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that were done right. I think there are a lot of things that can be done a whole, whole, whole lot better. Um, With regard to people taking issue with Kathleen specifically, you know, maybe they just happen to really like Maya. I don't know. Uh I will leave that up to them. And I would suggest that everybody do their homework on that and, um, uh, you know, make an informed decision, just like they did with, in the gubernatorial primary. Are, are state Democrats from all over the state, are they leaning towards a more progressive party outside rather than a traditional party? I mean, look, Ben Jealous was he, – he was in the progressive mold, the Bernie Sanders mold. Are they leaning towards a strong progressive to lead – Maryland State Democratic Party, or do traditional Democrats who are progressive but not quite as progressive as let's you know the the, the Sanders wing of the party, if there is one, uh, wh- where do you see the Democrats moving in this this election? Where do you see the Democratic Party shifting to, um, in in the years to come? Well, I don't know. And and personally, I always had a little, uh, I was always a little resentful of trying to be, somebody trying to shove me into an ideological box. You know, I work in acquisition streamlining. If you want to know who I look up to in terms of that kind of thing, often it's John McCain, right? But if you look at me on healthcare, right, sure. you'd say I, I'm like radically progressive in saying that CHIP is the best program that we've ever had in this country, and that's what everybody deserves, and, and uh, you know, even saying Medicare isn't good enough. But, uh, you know, ideologically, I don't think it's even linear. I think it's more like a, a quadrant, right? Like how corporate are you? The, like, you know, what you does that also mean, make a divide. Well, as in pro pro big corporations, how much are you willing to sacrifice from the people to have these big businesses uh, or to incentivize them or whatever you want, right? Um, 
you know, like there would be a lot of Democrats that take money from big pharma. Not my thing. I I have different no, that's thoughts Andy on that Harris's matter. Thing. That's Andy Harris's thing. Yeah, well, it's definitely Harris's thing. But Cardin, for instance, does as well. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that, that do take me- uh, money from the medical industry. I, I think it's more like there are a lot of things that we will agree to disagree about when it comes to issues as long as everybody is heard. But there's there's this new uprising that wants the big money out of politics. They want to figure out how to compete without having to raise so much money. They want to make sure that we're competing everywhere and that it's not just in these, in these urban areas, you know, that, that everybody has a voice. You think it's almost just like a different idea of governance. Uh, well, I'm looking at the vice chair election, and there are, let's see, one person from it's Baltimore City. One, yeah, there's a lot. One person from Baltimore City, one person from PG county another person from southern you're from the it, it looks like they have you allison galbraith comma eastern shore I, I i'm not sure if i quite understand that but scott kane comma eastern shore prince george's county baltimore city montgomery county uh jeffrey slavin who's the incumbent uh third vice chair and then nicole williams so and it says three are chosen two men and one woman is that so but well, so they issued work? a clarification. It will be at least one man uh-huh. and and one woman, and the third could be either. Okay, so... So you're not allowed essentially... to have two of more, more than two of one gender. Well, there's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You're competing against nine people, three of whom will be elected, and so what is the politicking here? Have you gained commitments from people running in, the, in all over the, the, uh, the different counties? How does that work? Well, as you might expect, the 12 counties where I was already running know exactly who I am. So that's yeah, not, of course. Uh, that's not necessarily difficult. Western Maryland, people are reaching out from Western Maryland saying they support me because they know that I will advocate for the rural areas and for competing within rural areas. And, and I hope they understand that I have a perspective on that kind of thing that I'm pretty much unmatched. I don't know that you could find anybody else who has the same kind of insights on, on certain sort of how to run a poor man's campaign throughout these rural regions <laughs> and what supports are really needed and what you need to recruit candidates in these areas. Um, I lost my thought there. Well, that's okay. Let me ask anyway, you this follow-up. Anyway, they're reaching – huh? Sorry? I, I was going to ask you the follow-up. What is the role of the vice chair other than to be the number two to the chair? What, what do you want to use – as a candidate for this office, for the vice chair of the Maryland Democratic Party, how, what do you want to do with this platform? Do you Is it to raise money? Is it to organize? Or do you want to go out and train other people to run for office out in the different rural areas? Or do you want to how, – how do you want to use this position to elect essentially more Democrats? Well, so it depends whether it's – so the first vice chair is going to be a man. And uh, there's a committee that that one chairs. I can't remember exactly. Second vice chair is the chair of the rules committee. The rules committee would oversee any changes to the bylaws, which is my primary interest 
in clarifying a lot of these things, in addressing how the votes are weighted even. Um, you know, some of, some of the, let's say, less than ethical tactics that are used are actually allowed within mm. the bylaws as currently written. Right. Uh, I say, you know, either verbally tell people the correct thing uh, or fix the bylaws so that it reflects what people think the rule actually is. But let's be consistent one way or another. We can either do it or we can't. Uh, and that's that's as it pertains to these sample ballots, right, I, if you're familiar with the issue of the sample ballots. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of understand that, but maybe explain it. Well, so there were these official party sample ballots that were being given out at many of the polls. And I know that it was a problem in PG County, and I know that it was a problem in Hartford County, and I suspect that it was an issue in other places as well. Now, it didn't hurt me any. I won Hartford County. I'm from Hartford County. But, right. um, you know, but other good candidates were hurt by this, right? And And part of my grief with it was, I had support from DCCs across the entire state, and the DCCs would say the, the, the spoken rule is that you are not supposed to pick a favorite during the primary, that you're not supposed to have any favoritism, yeah, that sure. everybody gets equal support, right, which, which effectively results in the party staying out of it. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting anything from the party. You're not getting anything from your DCC. They won't publicly support you in many cases if they're concerned about this rule, right? Um, but meanwhile, of course, we know that elected officials are out there backing certain people during the primary. So the whole thing is nonsense anyway. But <laughs> yeah, it, it can be. Anyway, anyway, uh, you know, I had DCCs in other counties that I knew were supporting me and out of respect for them and not wanting to put them in a tough situation and having my understanding of the bylaw being that they can't support anybody in the primary. I didn't ask them for help. They could have been, they could have been a great help, you know, but they were staying out of it because the understanding of that rule as while we stay out of it in the primary kept honest people honest, if that makes sense. Are you following? I follow. So, <laughs> then what we had going on was candidates going out and paying for these sample ballots, which I think is sort of like a dirty trick, but it's not illegal, right? There's nothing I, – I never thought it was prohibited in any manner. However, we also had DCC members, or at least one, handing these sample ballots out at the polls, which would be a violation of this bylaw as we have been made to understand it, which is stay out of it in the primary. You're not allowed to show favoritism. So a DCC member should not be out there handing out a sample ballot that leaves off certain Democratic candidates. Hmm. People filed a complaint about it with the party based on the section of the bylaws that it's referring to. What the bylaw actually says is that they're not allowed to support an independent or a Republican or a libertarian or somebody from outside of the party. Right. Inconsistency between what the bylaw actually says and what people think it says, which means that honest people stay honest, and then people that uh, you know want to try and get away with something do get away with something because there's nothing in the bylaws strictly prohibiting it. Fix it right. one way or another. I don't even care which one. <laughs> but either the DCC members know they can help, or uh, clarify the bylaw and say, look, if you do this stuff, we're pulling you off the DCC. Well, and that's just one thing. (laughs) And there are are a million other things to nitpick. Yeah, there's a lot. So 
what else are we to expect in the upcoming election? I I see the people who are running, and I I don't know too much about the candidates or their platforms. Tell me about the process that's going to unfold on Saturday. How does all of this work? How how does the voting take place? How do you do you vote by ballot by by raising your hand or do you make speeches? Is this going to be a long day? It's going to be a long day. There will be oh. speeches. Mm-hmm. Um, they elect the chairs first, uh, and then they go down to the vice chairs. I. The process itself is so complicated with these regional requirements and the gender requirements that I wouldn't want to get into great detail for fear that I would give somebody misinformation. I have to read it to understand what it is and where these breakdowns are. But, you know, they start, they go from top to bottom, and uh, you have to get majority. If you don't have majority of the vote, then they drop the one who received the least, and then they proceed again, and they call it for a vote again until you've established it. And there's some Hmm. question as to, let's say you only have, uh, right now, like uh, Bob, Bob Crescentstein, I think, from Western Maryland is the only one who ran for treasurer, right? Uh, he is the existing treasurer. And I'm pretty sure when you only have one person from one region going after one particular seat, that that's going to block out anybody else from Western Maryland. And I don't know what the implications of that are all over the rest of that list. But I'm sure that there are some similar things. So people get up, they make speeches. Yahoo, Yahoo, people, you know, it's, I, I, <laughs> I've been to many of these events before, and I have to tell you, Allison, some of them are interesting, and some can just be downright boring, and I, I don't know. I, maybe it'll be fun for, for certain people. Now, let me ask you this. Are, are they going to allow media? Because I kind of want to go to this. I what don't if, know. What if I just but... – well, I can show up. I might just show up and say, hey, I'm, I'm here to sit and watch. Um, I'm not a Democrat. <laughs> All right. You know, they might say, oh, no, I'm sorry, Ryan. You can't come in here, which is probably like they, they probably love to say that to, you know, to me. But oh, that's okay. there will be a lot of people there. Yeah. Maybe it's uh, fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, I would love to go and visit. And I have I have some I'm sure there, I have many friends who are involved with the the Democratic Party apparatus. I'm I'm a. A, a ferocious independent and I am someone that just sits on the sidelines and I watch what happens on both parties. Um, so what does, so as the vice chair, then when do you, you're elected that day, do you immediately assume office? Are you sworn in or is there a period of time that uh, elapses and then you're sworn in next in the, in the following year? Uh. I assume it's same day, but I learn mm-hmm. as I go, much like when I hopped into a congressional race. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, well, that's... that's how things kind of go with me sometimes. I'm like, right. hey, everything I'm doing would be better off done under the party. Let's go for mm-hmm. that. I will worry about the rest when I need to worry about the rest. I assume somebody will point me in the right direction as I go. Mm-hmm. And do, do you have to run every year, or is are you then elected – Every two years, or is that every four years? How does that work? They're four-year seats. Okay, so, so four years. Four years. And Kathleen yep. Matthews came. She came in 
I think during an unusual circumstance, though. She she was elected last year, I believe, so then she's up this year. How does that work? I think someone resigned, and then she was the interim chair, and then she was elected oh, right. the chair. Right. That's uh, which right. is – so I think it was just, a, you know, an additional election that they had had. Well – I, I, if I remember correctly, I think Bruce Pohl, who is a former state delegate, I know Bruce, he's from Washington County, and he was the former, um, the former majority leader, and he it was a former state delegate. He was the ch- in, interim chair of the Maryland Democratic Party. Um, now, another question is, does the state party representative, does the apparatus of the party, are they charged with the responsibility of hiring party staff as the executive director or communications director, or does that, is that strictly the chairperson's job? I believe the chair is the one to select those and also make appointments to the committees. Hmm. Okay. And every county in Maryland has a functioning Democratic Central Committee. Is that correct? Uh, to my knowledge, there's some of them are not very large. For instance, Somerset County only has two people. Well, that's 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 good though. Uh, Garrett County, um, my friend Regina Holiday, I believe, is on the Central Committee, or she was. And they look up in Western Maryland. They have they have some really good folks. And I know that there's a power struggle on some of the central committees, and we talked a little bit about this earlier in the show, Allison, that that what wing of the party is dominating which central committee. And in Washington County, they have their own issues where the the Sanders wing controls the Democratic Party, and there's some unhappy members. And then you go down the line to different counties. There's it's like the Sanders versus Hillary race all over again, and there's a competing power struggle. The least, the least productive question ever to answer, I will say. Yeah. That is the one uh, question. You can ask me about abortion. You can ask me about, about whatever hot-button issue you wanted during the congressional campaign. The one question I would not, never want to get into was Hillary versus Bernie because it doesn't matter. Our feet are, my feet are way too close to the fire to be worried about that, and I think that nothing is black and white like that. It's all... But who- who asked are gray. Did you get that question from Democrats that say which wing or who who are you? Oh yeah, aligned yeah. with so, I is mean, that the, the loyalty? The loyalty to them is in in some ways impressive, and in other ways, uh, you know, it's what's holding us back because none of those people are running anymore. So you know, it doesn't matter. And. Um, I think that you can have similar ideology to somebody and not necessarily like that person. I think that you can like a person and not have similar ideology to them. You know, there are just so many scenarios where it, it doesn't fit cleanly in some box that it's not—it's it, not even worth a debate about it. But um, you see it a little more from the Bernie side, I would say. But then there's a lot of animosity towards Bernie from the Hillary people. I just bridged them. I said, look, you know. Here's yeah, what I believe. A, can you do I'm that? I'm pretty progressive. And, I was also raised as a feminist. What do you What do you want from me? <laughs> Is there a struggle between traditional Democrats and the emerging Our Revolution groups? I see that some places. I, 
there there is, and I think that you know i lo- I look at all these groups and I understand what their objectives are, and I don't have any issue with any of it when it comes to electoral politics, I would suggest that somebody who is not clearly affiliated with either side is probably your better bet because you have to have somebody who can get along with both sides in right. order to get enough votes to win. Uh, I, you know, most of these people would still say I'd rather have a Democrat than you know, Andy Harris, for instance. Well, Regardless I think that whether you're a Bernie person or a Hillary person, that's or what, fair. it doesn't matter. That's fair. And I think some people don't identify with one side or the other. I think that party apparatuses, individuals, we are complex. I, I can't be nestled into – I'm an independent. I have, I have all kinds of political beliefs that are all over the map. Both parties hate me, and so I could, I could never fit ne- neatly in a you – know, it's like what, – what is it? Putting a, a square peg a into a round – yeah, I mean – Yeah, it's, yeah, there uh, you it, go. It, it doesn't work with me. I, I can't be boxed in particular category, Allison, and it's just not fair to say, well – Choose, choose one. No, I don't want to choose one. I'm, I'm happy where I am. I, I'm, I'm a free thinking person, and if, if I have, if I share ideas with one candidate and I share ideas with another, and they happen to be from dissenting political parties, then uh, that's that's a conversation that we can have. That's why I do this. I just, I like to have a conversation about politics and policy and how we can make Maryland a better state to live in. And I, and I think that's that's what we're all trying to accomplish. So you're right. I can imagine how that question would be annoying, Bernie or or Hillary. Oh, there were people there like, oh, oh, you weren't a member of our revolution in 2016. Well, we can't interview you then. Well, fine. That's nonsense. That's nonsense to me. Well, it doesn't. I'm. I mean, people people have their priorities, right? And we have to have a tent big enough and respect all of those priorities and understand where they're coming from. And be willing to listen to each other. The one box that I will say you can cleanly fit me in every time is that I'm on the side of working Americans, working families, the little guy, the people, the person who felt like their voice was never heard by their representative. That is the person who deserves the most focus from their representative. The people who are loaded with money and can donate to your campaign, they don't need any help. They're fine. It's everybody else that really needs representation that leads to this disenfranchisement, that leads to these anti-establishment attitudes, is the, is the money in the system so the candidates are paying attention to the people who have money instead of the people who really, really need a representative who is going to help them. And maybe that's the divide in the party. You know, uh, who do you pander to, your donors? or the people, because there's always a trade-off. If it's the people, you're trading off the money. If you're going for the money, then you're probably trading off the people in a lot of ways, which is an unfortunate scenario for any candidate to have to be in. I always choose the people. Because, I mean, you look at the reasons that I got into it, which was I was concerned I was going to lose my business because I'm a woman and my congressman is a misogynist. Yeah, I'm concerned about the people. Not not the big money, not what big pharma wants. I could care less what big pharma wants as long as people aren't aren't losing jobs and it's not rocking the economy. And everything is just a trade off. It's not black and white. Right. It's all it's all gray and it's all trade offs and there's no clean answer for anything. There is a price for no matter what decision you make. 
Allison, let me ask you a question. Do you think that sometimes, and and I this and this might be an easy answer, but do you think that sometimes, Allison, that certain sects of the Democratic Party and of course the Republican Party, we know that that they're hardcore supporters, but I've witnessed myself that the some of the R Revolution people, Allison, they are so inflexible that they can only see. It's, it's they have blinders on. If you are not to the tenth of progressive that they are, they want nothing to do with you. Do, do you see that as a? I mean, it's good to be principled, but do you see that as a problem ever? You're gonna get me in trouble, man. Let me say I have <laughs> I, a lot I, of respect for the art revolution people, and also that there are people who are inflexible in their thoughts across the entire political spectrum. You have people on either side of the right, sort of the normal side of the right, the scary side of the right, like the Harris. Yeah. And um, yeah, he's on the right. And you have That's it in sure. the Hillary wing, and you have it in the Bernie wing, and you have it all over the place. There are a lot of people who it's like this ideological purism, uh, and that is not necessarily helpful because at the end of the day, you do need a majority of votes to get yourself elected for anything. Yeah. Again, I think that I think the important thing is to be able to understand the perspectives of everybody and and represent everybody. And um I think that's a lot easier when your principles are based on ethics than when your principles are based on money or something else. And I will say that our revolution, their principles are based on on ethics and everybody having a voice and everybody being represented. And and almost like a like a left wing populist position on things, where it's not about the big corporations and their tax cuts, right? It's about the little guy and what does the little guy need? And I don't think that we should. Uh, I don't think that we can fault them for that because who doesn't want that? Really, every single person that I flipped, it was almost universally that. Just this idea that. Government is not supposed to be about the, the richest 1%, mm-hmm. right? That's not who it's supposed to work for. Right. Government is supposed to work for all of us. So we talked, us. About, we talked about Maryland politics ad nauseum, and let's, let's briefly, before we wrap up, any thoughts on what is coming in 2020 on the national front? Do you have the Beto mania? I will say, I will say that uh, that was a long pause. <laughs> I have to think about it. I like, I like him. I like mm-hmm. him. And you want to know why I like him? Because he's authentic. He's not poll tested. He didn't wait for anybody to tell him what he thought about these issues. He knows he how he won. feels about these issues. He's out there for the little guy, and I appreciate that. Further, further. That's the kind of thing that you can flip Republicans with and flip independents yeah. with is is this true idea of for the you know of for and by the people. It's not that you need to go more conservative, you know. It's just that you need to be there and you need to be fighting for working class families. And he's like that, you know. And and you look at how far C. Abrams got or Andrew Gillum yeah. got or Beto got. I mean, they they all have very sort of of populist views that it's about the little guy. Government's about the little guy. That's who we're going to be responsive to. It's not about your big donors. We don't care about your big donors. You guys are okay. Little guy. 
although the donors yeah. are waiting for to see what Beto does in 2020. They're they're waiting with bated breath. I think this is going to be one of the most crowded Democratic fields we have seen. I know that in my in my lifetime, I think you're going to see so many people get into the the race. It, it's just it, it's going to be overwhelming, and that's a good thing. That that will be a healthy conversation, and I think that whomever emerges as the nominee, Allison. I'm hoping that we can restore some sanity back into the Oval Office, some decency. It's just, it's desperately missing. I am, I'm, I'm every day we watch television, listen to the radio, consume news, read it online, wherever. And what we're, what we're seeing in the White House, I'm, I'm, I'm quite frankly, and I, I don't mean this in hyper, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but it's, I'm fearful. I've never seen anything like this. I have never seen anything like this. And I tell people, never allow yourself to get used to it. None of this is normal. None of what we're seeing from the Trump administration will ever become normal. And we just can't allow that to happen. We have to fight back every single day. And as someone who, you know, who writes about politics, it scares the hell out of me to see the way that the First Amendment is attacked in this administration. This is, that is a dangerous route that they are taking, and they know exactly what they are doing. Because the more that they repeat a lie, the more that the people who support him will believe it. And that's terrifying to see where we are. That is a base of what, 40%, maybe 35%? That's terrifying. That should not happen in this country. But whomever emerges as a Democratic nominee – Allison, we've got to restore sanity in the White House in America and just get well, things back and, to some normality. And and this all goes back to the party strategy and when are we going to realize that we must compete in rural areas? No. Michigan, that, Pennsylvania, you know, <laughs> well, Wisconsin. All of, them, all of them, right? I mean, I, I have some Pennsylvania some issues with the electoral college and how it works, but just show up and talk to people in all these states. Stop assuming our votes are a given. They're not. Your average disenfranchised, unreliable voter, their vote is not a given, but they will show up yeah. if you address their issues. Yeah, that's the I thing agree. for people to understand, and and also for the party to understand. Look, no, it's not about just these handful of states. It's not about just these handful of counties. You need to have a bench too. Because this isn't just a one-time election. I mean, coming. People are already talking about 2020. We just had 2018. They keep coming. <laughs> you need to have a bench. You need to be prepped. You need to have a network and infrastructure to it and, and a presence in all of these areas and, and make sure that you're not just catering to the needs of a few. And, and also... Like people need to take a deep breath and set their issues with Trump aside and do some real analysis on how did he win this thing? What was it yeah. he was doing that he managed to get a base that dedicated? Yeah, that good point. Loyal. Because if you can't match it, you can't beat it. You know, and I'm, well, I'm not saying do anything unethical, but you need to sort of understand the tactics that are at play, what it is about him that people like, um, you know, I, I have this one Trumpster friend that I really like talking to because he's very patient as I yell at him every three or four <laughs> sentences going, what? Why would you think that? 
but he's explained to me a lot about the mentality, you know, and he said, look, if it were, if it were Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush, I wouldn't have voted for either, but I voted for Trump. And at the end of the end of the day, like the root of it is just anti-establishment, you know, uh, and, and misinformation through the news, which I think in a lot of ways is our bigger concern is people don't even know what's truth anymore. That's my issue. What, did that just happen? I don't know. Did somebody really say that? I don't know. Like, I have to go do a bunch of fact-checking before I even respond to somebody's comment because I don't know what's true and what's I, just being read I on some all, news source. I see it all the time. My family members, whom I love dearly, they're wonderful people. They share things on their Facebook page that are not based in any factual reality. And I kindly prod them, send them notes to say, could you show me where you got that or how you discovered this article or this meme or whatever they're posting? And they'll say, oh, I just, I, you know, I saw it and I shared it. I'm thinking, but, but why? Because I think most of it conforms to their beliefs. And then I'll point something out that it's not factually accurate. And they'll say, well, it's still, you know, it, it could be true. And, and oh, so, confirmation bias. I have a huge it's like, what do you mean? It could fallacy be. cartoons now. What do you mean it could be true? No, this is, this is absolutely, in absolute terms, untrue. This is the opposite of true. This is false. This is nonsense. But, you know, we could talk all night about that. And I think that you are 100% correct. How do, how do we just talk to people? Just How do we get into the weeds and, just, and talk to people, rural, urban, suburban, um, urban, anywhere, Allison, is to, is to have a conversation with people, showing up at someone's door and having a serious conversation. That's what people are desperately want. Forget about all the Facebook stuff and the, the Twitter stuff. It's fun to do that, but how do we engage more people to get involved in our process? 2018 – was a good start. People are revved up. They want to be involved. This was a great year for democracy. I hope that that can continue onward into 2020. And I think that what you're doing is engaging people at their at the core, and you can tap into their passions, their energy, and you can extrapolate that. And then as the next vice chair, one of the vice chairs of the party – you can do a good deed by putting them to work and getting them even more involved in the process and passing it down. And I see that that is the good work that our party infrastructure does is they engage people who may otherwise feel that you know, they, they want to do something. They just don't know how. And I think it's promising, Allison, to see how many new people probably got involved with your campaign when you ran who got off, who, who got out the door and went out and talked to their neighbors who hosted events and, Getting people engaged in the process, that is so rewarding, and I'm sure you saw it each and every day when you were on the campaign trail. It was a lot. Did I ever tell you the story about the the young woman in Cambridge? No, please. I want to hear this. So, so, you don't mind sharing. Um, I, had, I had just cut my hair. Like all my all, Most of my campaign photos had me with really long hair, like halfway down my back. <laughs> yeah, I remember and that. I finally... I finally got frustrated and I cut it off, right? And um, and I guess people have been out out that way canvassing the week before or something like that. Anyway, I pull up and I park in this parking spot and this young woman comes up and she taps on the glass 
and uh, and she's pointing at these signs of mine in the back seat of the car, and she says, she says, I want one of those, and I said, okay. And so I reach back, and I'm getting her this sign, and she says, you know, I don't vote. I don't like politics. I feel like nobody cares. I you know, have no interest in this whatsoever. I've had no prior involvement, but I love her. She's one of us. We need one of us in there. Yeah. And, um, and then I looked at her, and I said, that's me. And she goes, that's you? <laughs> like, didn't know who she was talking to or that it was the candidate but that mm-hmm. that was the coolest thing was that somebody who had no political engagement whatsoever was finally involved because they looked at it and I guess they figure well hey you know if this if this single mom can run for congress then I can at least go vote yeah you know and and they felt like I understood their issues and and I think that that's between the left and the right is that level of authenticity. Look, I really get your issues. I'm actually going to do something about it. Most of the disagreement is not about what you're trying to achieve. It's about how you get there. And public policy gives you a lot of answers to that even. Like best practices aren't partisan. They're best practices. Well, Uh, that's that's what little wins, little wins. And I'm looking forward to the, the Saturday extravaganza, the all-day extravaganza where Democrats energized are assembling county by county in one location to talk about the future of Maryland's Democratic Party and how to engage future voters and to keep things – keep the trains running on time. A lot of times party infrastructure is is, is very businesslike, and uh, it's, it's often run like a business, and there's some – very non-interesting aspects of how party governance works, but I think you're going to see the nuts and bolts in action, the the the, the juice uh, on Saturday. So this should be fun. I hope I can if I can if I can go. I'm going to try to go. I was invited by a friend of mine, and uh, if she she can get me in the door, then I will go and sit back and and listen very quietly. But Allison, you're always a great guest. You're energetic. You're a lot of fun, and you are a wealth of information. I appreciate you doing this. I know that you are a very busy person, but I really sincerely appreciate you coming on. And I think you're going to do really well on Saturday. And it looks like you've already you're off to a a great start. And uh, I'm anxious to see the results. It, well, hey, tell your uh, your Montgomery County and PG County folks <laughs> to come out and support me because those would be the two counties where I know fewer people and their their votes are weighted way more heavily than the people from the half the counties I know in this state. Hmm. Well, that's now you can pick up the phone, and probably call them or start lobbying them. I will. But, I will. Okay. Good. Good. Well, they'll, I, I will. They'll hear, uh, they'll hear from me. <laughs> they will hear from me, you said. So, yeah, well, that's all hear from me. That's good stuff. Well, Allison, I I sincerely appreciate you coming on. Uh, this has been a fun discussion, and I think that with folks like you engaged in the party, that the Democratic Party will be in good hands for for years to come. So, uh, best of luck to you on Saturday. Thank you very much. Okay, have a great week, and we'll see you soon. All right, hopefully. All right. Okay, bye-bye.
All right, everybody, that was Allison Galbraith. She is a candidate for the Democratic State Central Committee's first vice chair. Give her a look. She's on Facebook. She is on Twitter, and her last name is spelled G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H. First name is Allison. Find her, look her up, and engage with her. She is someone who is always willing to have a great conversation, uh, and she will talk to anybody. So, Friends, let's see. Next Sunday, I'll make it this announcement. I'll make it this announcement. That's probably not correct grammar, but I will make the announcement that on Sunday, Sunday, December the 2nd, I will be moderating a panel on behalf of a minor detail radio podcast and a minor detail in Washington County, in Hagerstown, the city of Hagerstown at the Flying Camel from 4 to 7 and we are doing a discussion about Washington County government. It's called Washington Washco Revisited. We're going to talk about the 2018 election, what happened in county government, where to move forward. And there are three dynamic panelists, one being Donna Brightman, a former Board of Education member and former candidate. And we're going to have Scott Bryan, who was a former Republican candidate, and Bernie Simler, who we had on the show before. Bernie ran for state's attorney in Washington County this past election. We are going to talk about these issues with, like I said, these three candidates and exchange some ideas and hopefully clarify and reconcile the results of Washington County's recent election, have a high-level discussion, have a question-and-answer session. The panel kicks off at 5. The event starts at 4. Grab some drinks. Grab some food. The Flying Camel is located in downtown Hagerstown. It's a cool new place. I've been there twice now and have met with their owners. Truly awesome people, and we're hoping to get something going on a more permanent basis there. So check us out. Check us out on Facebook as well. We have an invite, but Sunday, December the 2nd, from 4 until 7 p.m. in the city of Hagerstown at the Flying Camel we're going to do a panel discussion that I'm moderating. It's called Wash Code Revisited. With that, friends, I look forward to this excellent week. Everybody, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And tomorrow, yes, the dreaded back to work. Uh, and that's okay. Got to go back and make some money. Keep the economy going. Friends, thank you for listening. You can find me online at a aminordetail.com. I'm on blogtalkradio.com slash detail. My name is Ryan Miner. I'm your host of a Minor Detail radio podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and have a wonderful, wonderful week.